All right, welcome everybody. Welcome to Summit Community Church. So um, we are making progress with our study of John. We're actually preaching through John, and we are starting chapter 2 this morning. Everybody says, woo! We've spent several weeks in, uh, in chapter 1, and I, I say this quite a bit, but the prologue, the first 18 verses in chapter 1 of John, is just packed with solid meat and all kinds of good stuff. And so we wanted to sort of take our time and go through chapter 1 so that we give the Word of God its due and make sure we understand everything that the Lord is trying to, uh, that that the Lord is telling us in chapter 1. We did that, and now we're starting chapter 2 this morning. And this morning, we're actually going to be looking at the first miracle Jesus performed when he started his earthly ministry. Now, uh, there have been many ways in which this miracle has been interpreted over centuries. Many have been fanciful and speculative. Uh, Some of them are just out there. (laughs) Some of them are just out there. But this miracle is actually, I think, a wonderful account of blessing and abundance. And in many senses, it shows how Jesus cares for those he is with, right? He understands their needs, and he meets those needs. Uh, He meets those needs with abundance, and he creates joy around him as he is meeting those needs. At the same time, though, this miracle of Jesus also begins to show his disciples just who he truly is, okay, and the extent of his power and his ability to bless. So ultimately, this miracle demonstrated what the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus, And we're going to look at some of these aspects this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 1 and go through verse 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's faith right there. (laughs) Uh, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Lord, thank you so much for your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would have us to learn from this miracle, from the context, from the setting, Lord, and let us be moved in the same way that your disciples were moved at this miracle. Lord, let us See this and believe in you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so um, <laughs> let me first, through a short introduction, address some of the issues surrounding this miracle. Now, I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers, <laughs> uh, but remember, I don't write the mail, I just deliver the mail, okay? I'm a messenger. <laughs> I'm a messenger. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? There are times when Scripture says things and implies things that we may not like, but we have to wrestle with in order to come to grips with what the Scripture is actually saying, right? So I think this morning we need to wrestle a little bit with a few points in our text this morning before we kind of jump into it, right? So one is, yes, wine is wine in Scripture, okay? And I know we're in a Baptist church, but wine is wine, okay? It is a fermented alcoholic beverage from grapes. (laughs) Um, Now, I have many pastors, I've been many pastors, even from the pulpit on Sunday morning, say to me that the word wine, when used in the Bible, it's not really alcoholic, it's just unfermented grape juice. And friends, (laughs) that's either very bad biblical exegesis, biblical study, uh, or quite frankly, it's just based on pure ignorance, okay? And I hate to even mention this, it could be pure deceit. I doubt it. I'll give these pastors the benefit of the doubt. But some very simple word studies would clear this up in short order, okay? The Greek word, and I don't normally get into the Greek word, but I think it's important to in this, in this particular uh, text here. The Greek word used in this text this morning is the word for wine, fermented grape drink, <laughs> Okay? There is a separate word in the Greek language that could be used for unfermented grape juice, right? So there are two separate words. So if the author wanted to make a point one way or the other, he would use one of these two separate words. In this case, and in most 90, I don't know how many, a large, large number of cases throughout the Bible, um, the, the Greek word is used that means wine, unfermented, I'm sorry, fermented, alcoholic grape drink. I don't even know how to describe it. That's what it is, okay? Um, now, sometimes, I will say this, sometimes the, the, the wine was diluted with water, making it a little less strong than what we typically drink today. It's kind of along the same lines. I mean, I, you know, wine, I guess, has like, what, you know, 20% alcohol. I don't, I'm not even sure. You know, beer has like in the, in the, in the, the single digits, six, seven, eight percent, or something like that. When diluted in the Bible, the wine had sort of the same same alcoholic content dilution as beer, so it was less than what we drink today. Uh, it was a little strong. It was a little less strong. Most of the time, they did that because, of course, things were expensive. Wine had to last a little bit longer, so they diluted it right with water. Um, but it was still fermented. So I'm sorry. I want to be clear. We need to wrestle with scriptures. We need to understand what scriptures say. We need to do the work and we, we need to study. We need to understand that, yes, this was wine, okay? Um, now, bear with me because I'm, I'm going to make a point. I am not promoting alcohol, alcoholic beverages, but let me get through a couple of things and I'll explain that. Secondly, though, okay, so that's number one, wine is wine. Secondly, though, in verse 10, The master of ceremony says that most people serve the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. Well, why is that? Because people drink the good wine, they get to feeling pretty good, 
They don't care that the, that the subsequent wine is no good. <laughs> Cheap, you know, whatever, Mad Dog 2020 or something. I have no idea. You know, whatever. Um, right? So, but in this case, when the master of ceremony said, when people have drunk freely, again, I don't like getting into the Greek terms because I don't want to feel like I'm, you know, whatever. But he's not referring to drinking too much liquid. He's literally referring to inebriation. Okay, that's what the Greek word means, all right? So I have heard many times that the MC could not have been talking about alcoholic beverages and certainly not that people were getting a little drunk. Why is this? Because in creating undiluted exceptional wine that Jesus did, he would have been contributing to the inebriation of the wedding guests. And this would have been sinful but we know that Jesus never sinned. He, he became sin who knew no sin that we might, right, be to the glory of God. So Jesus, of course, never sinned. But, so where am I going with this? Everybody's like, Brett, you're like on a soapbox. Not really. But all of this lacks scriptural support. This is where I'm going with this, Okay. And this line of thinking is nothing but a slave to the early fundamentalism of many Christian churches and the idea that consuming alcohol in any form or fashion was sinful. Okay, let's be honest here in this text. The wedding guests were getting a little drunk, okay? Jesus supernaturally provided them an abundance of new, undiluted, perfect wine, and the guests drank some of it getting even more drunk, okay? However, drinking alcohol in scriptures is not sinful. So nobody's going to want me back next week <laughs> after this. Um, however, drink, uh, okay, drinking alcohol in scriptures is not sinful. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Now, I will say this. Drunkenness, drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is sinful. Drunkenness is repeated abusive overuse of alcoholic beverages, right? I have a family member that gets drunk every single night. And I'm sorry, that is, that is sinful, okay? I just want to make sure that we wrestle with the biblical text and understand what the text says, and we base our views of things that God has created and done and all that kind of stuff based on the biblical text, not on what we may have thought or assumed or whatever, right? And don't take my word for it, please. You know, go to the scriptures and dig. Dig and do your own homework if you don't believe me. Please do that. I encourage that. Now, let me say this. Don't hear what I'm not saying, all right? I am not promoting the consumption of alcohol. I have seen personally firsthand with relatives what the abuse of alcohol can do to families and relationships. It can be devastating to marriages, to friendships, to your health and the health of others, right? And the lives of others, quite frankly, all right? I personally don't drink alcohol. I don't like it, and quite frankly, it's too expensive for me. I'm too cheap, okay? It's just too expensive. I don't even want it, right? Um, you know... Um, I will have to admit, when I was stationed in Germany, I was in a town 
with three military bases and 13 microbreweries. <laughs> so I was in Germany, right? I had to sample some of the wares, right? I just, it, you know, I was 20-something. I could, I could take it. Didn't really like it. I never really acquired a taste for it. But I'm like, it's Germany. I can't not, you know, be here and not, you know, see what it is, right? So can't do it. Um, but I just don't. Because uh, the times, the, the, the few times that I did when I was younger, um, you know, uh, in the Army as a West Pointer and stuff like that, I drank to get drunk. And I knew at that particular time, I said, this is, go- this is going nowhere. It's going nowhere good for me. I had friends that could manage it, do it in moderation. The very few times that I did, I, I, I could not do it in moderation. So I said, this is not going to work for me. I'm going to... I'm going to get discharged or I'm going to die, <laughs> you know, something, right? So I think this is, a, this is a, a decision that I've made. But the scriptures leave drinking alcohol up to the individual. It's not a primary theological consideration that needs to be divided over or argued over, quite frankly, right? Let's face it, the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the justification our justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Those, I believe, are two of the primary doctrines that we must hold and defend at all costs. There are others. Alcohol isn't one of them. Okay, thirdly, let's explore what Jesus says to his mother when she tells him that about when she says they're running out of wine. Jesus says... uh, It appears at first glance in a somewhat disrespectful and derogatory manner. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not come yet, right? What does Jesus mean here? Because, you know, I think a lot of us read that and they're like, dude, that's your mom. (laughs) You know, what? Don't be so, don't be so disrespectful. Um, But first I want to look at some context, right? So first of all, in the ancient Near East... Uh, in the time when Jesus lived and all this, there was a strong element of reciprocity about weddings. And that, for example, it was possible to actually take legal action in certain circumstances um, against a bridegroom who had failed to provide the appropriate wedding gift or to someone who had provided or failed to provide the appropriate wedding gift to the bridegroom. However, also, uh, you know, I mean, this is quite foreign, right? Oh, you didn't give me a good enough gift? Well, I'm suing you because I invited you to my wedding and you just didn't man up give me something good, you know, you gave me a crock pot, man, I don't need that, (laughs) you know, I mean, you see what I'm saying, so, but it was serious back then, I mean, it was serious, so this is foreign to us, and we kind of just tend to like overlook things like this, right, but it means though, when the supply of wine failed, it was more than social embarrassment, in fact, the bridegroom and his family may well have become involved in a lawsuit, a serious lawsuit because they invited all these guests to the wedding and they ran out of stuff and that was just, no. That could actually have led to legal action. So the gift made by Jesus uh, was actually doubly important. It was extremely important in what he did. And, and we, I think as moderns, going to a normal wedding, we just don't fathom this. But it was extremely significant. So it was not just, hey, we need more to drink. It was a serious affair, 
right? So second, Jesus, though, was not disrespectful, okay? And again, this is one of those sermons I don't normally do. This This is the third time I think I mentioned the Greek term. But the Greek term is not as cold as the English seems to be. The term woman in this case was like my lady. It was kind of a more respectful, formal, uh, it wasn't, you know, mom. It was my lady. It was ma'am kind of a thing, so, so like that. So it was very respectful and was full of affection. Um, and, but also, though, I want to I stress, at the commencement of Jesus' public ministry, there was a new relationship now between Mary and Jesus, right? It wasn't son and mother. Now it was, you know, son of God and his people, right? Jesus was not going to perform a miracle on a whim. Mary says, you need to do something about this. Jesus says, look, you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) I mean, in a respectful fashion, right? But it was, mom, I'm no longer your son. This is my public ministry. There's been a change of relationship here. You're still my mother, but now I'm here to do my father's will, right? Um, And Jesus wants to just make this clear that he's not just going to, eh, okay, let me just perform a miracle here. This would be cool. It is, I'm, I am here to do my Father's will. Now, he said that, I think, to make sure Mary understood that, but obviously it was his time to act, which he did, right? But he did so out of, you know, not, let's say, a mother's just ad hoc request, but it was something that, Right, we'll see later that it was to glorify him and help others believe in him. So there was a purpose to this. But in faith, Mary, Mary was like, yeah, whatever. Just, just do what he tells you to do. <laughs> right? So she had this faith. She had this kernel of faith that was like, yeah, whatever. Okay, I get it, but do what he tells you to do. All right, so I'm sorry. That was a little bit of an introduction. Uh, we're going to move a little faster now. Miracles. Miracles. Right? We see so many self-described miracle workers on TV, heal people in stadiums and on street corners and churches. But do these so-called miracles bear some of the same characteristics of the miracles in the Bible, right? I am skeptical. I don't think so. So what I want to do is look at some of the characteristics of this miracle, and let's see what happens. All right, so number one, the miracle in John 2 was supernatural. It was supernatural. The servants filled the containers with water. They drew some out. They gave it to the master of ceremonies. It was wine. It was wine, right? Water plus Jesus equals wine. That's it. There was no magic words. There was no spells, right? There was no magic wand, incantations. Jesus didn't proudly proclaim, command the water to turn into wine, right? There was no magic formula. It was completely and totally God creating something grand from something else mundane, okay? And also note, too, Christ was the one to actually do the miracle, yet the servants were the ones that seemed to do all the work, (laughs) right? They filled the water pots, they drew some of the wine, they took it to the governor of the feast. I mean, there was no visible you know, exhibition or nothing of putting forth some sort of divine power, it just, bam, it just happened, okay? 
Um, and I think this speaks to us today. I think this speaks loudly to us today, right? It was a parable in action. It mean, the means used were human. The results were divine, okay? This was Christ's first miracle, and in it he shows us, I think, that God is pleased to use human beings, human beings as instruments in performing the wonders of supernatural grace, right? I mean, think about this. When, when God, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, converts someone from a sinner to a child of God, is that not a supernatural event? I mean, the dead sinner becomes alive in Christ. That is a supernatural event. The empty water pots were stone cold, lifeless, just sitting there, useless. That is until Christ commands them to be filled with water, which is a symbol for the word of God in the, in the, in the Bible. Then Jesus acts in a supernatural way. The pots nor the water help. Servants of Christ help, right? They do things, but it is Christ and Christ alone that performs the miracle, both at Cana and in the souls of, un, of, of converted sinners. So secondly, the miracle in John 2 was immediate. The water turned into wine. It was fermented, it was aged, gone through the process. There was no waiting for the water to slowly, gradually change into the wine, right? And I mean, there's a lot of, I've seen videos of a lot of, you know, prosperity, false gospel, you know, who like somebody says, oh, my back hurts. They sit them down and they, they wiggle their legs and they, they do something, they, then, they, then they like gradually move one and it seems like they're growing the leg out and all this kind of thing. It's just, I mean, it hurts me. It's kind of disgusting. It kind of hurts me because they deceive people. But, you know, very few of these fake miracles are immediate, right? They just... Let me, let me take some time. Oh, yeah, give it a couple of days. You'll be great. But think about this, too. So evolution is a big thing with me, right? Um, it's a big lie from the evil one perpetrated on mankind. And I know some of you think, you know, <laughs> Brett, you need to focus on something else. But it is, it is devastating because it impacts nearly every single thing the Bible teaches, not just about creation but even salvation, um, but one of the questions people ask is if God created in six days, then how can light from visible stars, how can light be visible from stars that are millions of miles away? Right? If the earth is not old, well, it sure looks old, they say. Did God create with the appearance of age? Well, these are easy questions, quite frankly, if you look at the scriptures. When Jesus created wine from water, it was already fermented, it was already aged, it had already gone through the process. It was good wine. I mean, I don't know how wine is created. I probably should have did some research on that. But, I mean, I think they created it and they set it in a barrel for years. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I don't know, right? But, I mean, it takes time. But in this case, bam, it was in an instant. So if God wants to create stars whose light is visible on earth for certain purposes, then he just does so. If Jesus, who is God, wants to create wine from water, fully fermented, aged, and ready in the blink of an eye, then he just does so. So thirdly, the miracle was first class, perfect quality. Note the MC, after tasting the newly created wine, complimented the bridegroom on the quality of the wine. It wasn't diluted. It wasn't watered down. It wasn't the run-of-the-mill house wine the wedding planners had, you know, ordered and served. 
right? I mean, this was good stuff. The wine created by Jesus was first class, perfectly fermented, aged, whatever. It was great. It was great. So remember, friends, Jesus does, he does nothing halfway. God does nothing halfway, all right? And I think this illustrates the way men, uh, the ways of men and the ways of God, right? The world gives us its best first and keeps the worst for last. First, the pleasures of sin for a season. Oh, man, this is awesome. But then the wages of sin. But with God, it's the very opposite. He brings his people into the wilderness before he brings them into the promised land. First the cross, then the crown. So what does this all mean to us? What does this all mean to us? Just a few things very quickly. One is the miracle was done through faith. Mary simply told the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. I don't think there was a doubt in her mind what was going to happen. I mean, she knew. That is faith. They filled the pots with water. They took some out for the MC to taste. Now, this had to be a tense moment, right? Because the servants filled the jars with water. And then Jesus says, take some of this and go feed it to the MC. They're like, you can do that. I'm not doing this. You do this. I'm not doing this. You do this. They all knew it was water, you know. They're like, man, I ain't going up there. This guy will kill me, you know. But they did. They drew the water out, the liquid out, let's say. I'm not sure. The scripture doesn't say at what point it becomes wine. But the servants did what they were told, and they took it to the MC. Now, they were probably like, oh, man. Okay, I don't know who this dude is, but it's got to be. you got to come through, you know. you got to come through. Um, so the servants, I think, had some faith too. I think the servants may have had some faith as well, right? Mary had faith in the ability and the love and grace of Jesus, and the servants had enough faith to act on the words and the commands of Jesus as well. So faith, faith. Second, Miracle, the miracle was done out of love and mercy. Jesus didn't do this for himself. Uh, Mary, Jesus, and his disciples were all invited to the wedding feast. Right? Think about this. There's a little line in the scripture that says, you know, Mary was at the wedding feast. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Okay. <laughs> they had to have known the bride or the bridegroom. I mean, Nobody but wedding crashers shows up to a wedding just ad hoc. You're not like, ooh, there's some, there's some dudes having a wedding. Let's just go check out the food and drink, right? I mean, nobody does that. Um, so they didn't just randomly show up. They were at a friend's wedding. I have to think. They were at a friend's wedding. So a situation emerged that would have been catastrophic for the wedding couple, the guests and everyone there, right? Jesus saw the need. And he filled the need. Yes, it was in secret, but no, he didn't brag about it. Jesus simply and secretly blessed the wedding. Not simply meeting the need, but with an overabundance. Remember, there were six jars, each holding, they said, between 20 and 30 gallons of water. Okay? That's 180 gallons of wine. Okay, nobody, 
I don't care if you ha- I don't care. This, this wedding feast didn't drink all this wine. I'm just telling you this right now. But it gives glory to God because this was an abundance. And this was actually, when all was said and done and all this was left over, this was a huge gift to the wedding couple. It was a significant gift to the wedding couple. Right? And Jesus, in meeting, you know, in his abundance, in meeting our needs, Jesus doesn't skimp. (laughs) Right? He doesn't just skimp. It's always overflowing. He knows what we need. He fills our need to overflowing in his love and mercy. All right? So third, the miracle produced joy at the wedding feast. Note the MC actually complimented the bridegroom on the quality of the new wine. Everyone was joyous, right? At first, people were tense. Oh, my word, we don't have enough wine. You know, the bridegroom was just about to be responsible for a major crisis. But then the MC tasted the new wine. He complimented, he complimented the bridegroom for actually bucking tradition, right? Because tradition said, give the, uh, give the good wine first and then the poor wine later. But he said, hey, you, you've done, you've gone above and beyond. You've given the best wine later. So he even complimented him on going above and beyond tradition, Right? doing better than the custom was. So when Jesus performs the miracle of conversion in someone's life, changing the dead, lifeless, bland life to a new life, a child of God, alive in Christ, there's joy in the heart of that person. Joy in the heart of that person. Unspeakable joy. The joy at the wedding, I think, was but a taste of the joy that one gets when they receive Christ and repent of their sins. Okay, fourthly, the miracle manifested the glory of God. Verse 11 says it plainly, right? Jesus did not do anything out of selfish desire or wants. Remember, our purpose as human beings is first and foremost to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you want to know the purpose of a human being in one sentence, that's it. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What was Jesus' purpose on this earth to do? to do his Father's will. And everything we do, we should do for the glory of God. Okay, so finally, uh, the miracle produced and increased faith in Jesus. Right Again, the last sentence in verse 11 also says this. The miracle had lots of effects on various people. Some people were hidden from the miracle, such as the master of ceremonies, right? Some had witnessed it firsthand, such as the servants and the disciples, But the scriptures tell us that his disciples believed in him due to the miracle. We have no word on the servants, but we see Jesus' disciples clearly growing and believing. So remember, we talked about this back in the very beginning when we started the book of John. The purpose of the book of John from John 20, verses 30 through 31 is this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So ultimately, the miracle at Cana, water to wine, was this. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that may, by, by believing you may have life in his name. Out of anything else, that's the purpose. So let me conclude by saying this. So many people today crave signs and wonders, right? People want to see miracles. They want to see healings. They want to see people raised from the dead, right? But these miracles that were performed by Jesus had a purpose while he was on the earth. To draw people to himself and encourage those people to receive and believe in the name of Jesus. But let's not focus so much on the miracle itself that we miss the miracle worker. And I think today, so many people want to see signs and wonders and miracles and things like that, that they focus way too much on the miracle and they don't focus on the miracle worker. For Jesus, these miracles are all signs. They point beyond themselves. They point to something beyond just themselves. This particular miracle, I think, signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the riches and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, and the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. Let's pray.